On the show today, Rich and I are joined by art expert Billy Newton to discuss why there are no paintings in Star Wars, and we'll drink a blue milk cocktail. I'm your host, Brad Jackson, and you're listening to the May 22nd, 2023 edition of Coffee and Koshan. So, Rich, you and I both are big fans of Star Wars. We watch, watch a lot of Star Wars in this house. I watch it with my kids uh, now, and uh, we watched it growing up. There was a fantastic article, a great piece uh, by our friend Billy Newton at The Spectator about why there are no paintings in Star Wars. And with us today to chat about it is Billy. Billy, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it as well. Great to talk to with you guys. So, uh, before we get into the specifics here, how did you how did you sit down one day and say, you know what? I wonder why there are no paintings in Star Wars. <laughs> um, well, it's it, I as I said in the in the in the article, there was a there was a more extended version of it, but obviously, you know, your editor has to cut after a while. Um, I was watching episode nine and. Uh, at the end, when Ray ends up killing her grandfather, although it's not really her grandfather, it's her uncle, but we won't get into that issue. Uh, one of the things that happens is with the kind of explosion that takes place, there are all these colossal statues of Sith Lords that are surrounding this audience hall where all the Siths are, are gathered. And all these massive statues start crumbling into you know boulders, which then go bowling into the sort of arena seating and killing all of the Sith. And I thought that's a really interesting use of art as a weapon. Um, haven't really <laughs> seen that before in Star Wars. And then I thought, you know, oh yeah, there's this sculpture here and there's that there. And I thought, huh, there's no paintings. And, and I collect paintings and, and, and painting is, uh, I mean, I, I follow all areas of art, but, but painting is an area that, that is for me is number one. Um, and because I'm old, I just hit my half century. And, and as I said in the piece, I am old enough that I saw episode four in a drive-in theater in the summer of 1977. And I remember it vividly going with my dad. Um, Star Wars has always been a part of my life. Um, I'm not a Star Wars fan in the sense of having seen all of the, you know, television shows or, uh, read the books or everything like that. But I have seen all 11 live action feature films, some of them multiple times. And I started going through this exercise of thinking about art writ large in the Star Wars films um, and thinking of places in the films where art exists. So we have music of different kinds. You know, we have, we have opera, we have jazz, we have folk dance. Um, we have all kinds of drawings. In fact, drawings are often very important to the, uh, progress of the story, right? Death star plans being, you know, the classic example of that. They're two dimensional renderings of a three dimensional object. Um, there's different, as I said earlier, different works of sculpture that appear here and there. Um, there are people who collect works of art in the film and, and, and in the films and we sort of see them. Um, and then of course there's the classic, you know, the only direct line about, art or, or at least referencing art in all of the films is in uh, episode six in return of the Jedi when Luke sends a hologram of himself to Jabba the Hutt asking that Jabba release Han Solo 
who has been frozen in carbonite at the end of episode five, Empire Strikes Back. And we then learn that he's still alive because he's hanging on the wall um, in Jabba's palace. And Jabba says, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to give up, you know, my favorite decoration. So, but throughout the films, there aren't any paintings at all. And I thought, well, that can't be right because George Lucas himself is a very serious art collector. And one of the future articles that I had in mind was when it opens to go see the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, which after many controversies of where it was going to be, is going to be opening in 2025 in LA. Um, And I follow the art market. I read a lot of art news every day. And I've been noticing in the last several years how the Lucas family has been augmenting their already already rather significant art collection by, you know, throwing out some major dough for some, you know, major pieces by big names. Um, and I thought, well, why does someone who collects art does, you know, was not interested in putting any paintings, um, in the films when he has so many paintings himself. And the more I dug into it, uh, went on, you know, reputable sites like Wikipedia, where you can type in any word you want pretty much. And the star Wars fan base out there has listed in every film and every television episode and every you know novel, um, where certain things appear. And I found that paintings do appear in the star Wars universe, but not in any of the films. And I thought, well, that's strange. Why aren't they in any of the films? And so from there, I had uh, read Stephen Kent's book, which you guys may have read and and probably some of your listeners have read because it's fantastic, uh, called How the Force Can Save the World. And uh, I took him to breakfast one day and I said, hey, why are there no paintings in the Star Wars movies? And I will never forget the look on his face because he kind of sat back in his chair and his jaw dropped open and he goes, huh. (laughs) (laughs) And he like thinks for a minute and he's like, there are no paintings in Star Wars films. I'm like, I'm telling you, right? Like I'm not, I probably know more than the average bear about Star Wars, but I'm not, you know, serious fan base or anything like that. But it just, it just occurred to me that they're not there. And then he had mentioned, you know, well, you know, in Clone Wars, there's this and in Mandalorian, there's that. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But they're, you know, for most people, most people access the the films through, you know, the trilogies and, and, you know, the couple of standalone films, but there are no paintings in there. And I don't know why. And he's like, well, that's a piece. And I'm like, I guess it is. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, persuaded my editor who was very skeptical and said, no, that can't be right. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you, there are no paintings in Star Wars, right? Like, what do you want me to say? And uh, so that's, yeah, that's that's where all that came from, is just from paying attention to stuff. I, 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 I guess because since that's, for me, a particular area that I'm interested in, both personally and professionally, i.e. things on canvas, um, I would notice that in a way that, for example, someone who is an engineer might notice certain things about the Star Wars universe, like, you know, the classic thing of how can you hear a battle in space if space is a vacuum? Um, and that's just what I was drawn to, but it did really surprise me that no one had, uh, had mentioned this before. 
You know, what's interesting about this is that, as you mentioned, Star Wars is not devoid of art. There is art in Star Wars. There is plenty of sculpture. And if you see, like, there, the, as you mentioned, there are people who collect art. Um, if you watched uh, the Solo, that, that standalone uh, movie uh, that uh, Ron Howard did, uh, the main bad guy in that has a room that is full of his art collection, and, like, he shows it to people, and it's it's full of all this stuff. And... We saw that again in Andor, there's a guy who is an art dealer. Um, and then there's Grand Admiral Thrawn, who first appeared in the books and has now been in the cartoons and is about to be in the TV series. Um, and he likes to learn about cultures in Star Wars through their art. But as you mentioned, none of it is paintings. I mean, there is there is paint on surfaces. It's usually a wall in the form of graffiti or a ship. Um, but you're right, there is no paint on canvas which is really bizarre because it seems like as you mentioned you go from like the importance of a drawing just to nothing (laughs) to nothing and it's very and and you and you have mentioned and this is something that i that i um that i brought up in the article which i ended up having to diffuse because steven warned me this was going to happen he's like all the serious fans are going to come after you for this um I made the distinction in the article of saying, I'm not talking about the TV shows. I'm not talking about the graphic novels. I'm not talking about that area, which I would consider a sort of, if you will, secondary market. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the primary market, what most people associate star Wars with, which, you know, I'm going to, you know, the big screen and I'm getting a, you know, tub of popcorn and I'm watching, you know, what's the latest thing that happened with the skywalkers. Right. Um, there's nothing in there. And then people like Thrawn and so forth, whom I didn't know anything about, you know, Stephen gave me some education on that. I did some research on that. And, 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 you know, and I said in the piece, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not talking about everything. All I'm saying is that you would think that for the things that Lucas himself, before his kind of retirement from active involvement and in all of that worked on, um, not one painting, you know, and, and, and my youngest brother is a uh, film professor at SCAD. So, and he, for many <laughs> years, had um, a long, you know, very popular Star Wars site that he ran. And I called him and I asked him the same question. And I said, more through the paintings in Star Wars films. And, at, and he had the same reaction as Steven at first. But then he said, well, but you have to think about that in four, five, and six, a lot of the environments where they visit are not really hospitable to putting a painting on the wall. And I said, I could see that to an extent. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't have a painting in the dining room on cloud city, for example, but okay, that's fine. But one, two, and three, those films are in very sophisticated environments, right? I mean, Coruscant is this very glamorous, you know, galactic capital, like something, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis on steroids. Um, and Naboo, where um, Padme Amidala comes from, is this wonderfully Byzantine uh, kind of mixture with Baroque and Asian influences and stuff, and these massive palaces. And, and the live action aspects of those were actually shot in Baroque palaces in Italy. But there are no paintings there. Um, and it just seems so odd for someone who, as I said, has been a major art collector for years. George Lucas has the largest collection of Norman Rockwell paintings and private hands. 
Um, and ever since they announced this museum, they have been buying major, major narrative works uh, by people like, you know, Frida Kahlo and Artemisia Gentileschi um, and Jacob Lawrence and, you know, this kind of diversity of, of stuff on canvas that they're going to hang in this museum, you know, but nothing on, on the films. And uh, yeah, it's very strange. It's especially strange when you look at it, you know, it's in a, a galaxy far, far away, but a long time ago, and it completely ignores historical function of art and granted the star wars universe highly technologically advanced but something that i didn't know until maybe a decade ago was how paintings the the purpose that they served in human history before photograph and things like that of you know here's a place maybe you want to move you know maybe some area in the united states is trying to advertise how great the fishing is and to the modern right. eye like oh, that's just a picture of a guy fishing, but no, that was an early nope. advertisement. And yeah. just all the way that art was used to capture history and could have been used to even further uh, enrich the Star Wars stories by having those little nuggets in there where people could see and get even a bigger sense of what society was like in the Star Wars universe. Well, Rich, you're absolutely right about um, that, that sort of purpose with a particular area of art. Um, art has often... Uh, particularly uh, things to hang on the wall or to paint on the wall has often been used for, and I'm going to use this with a lowercase P propaganda um, because whether you are, for example, the Medici in Florence during the Renaissance, right? You're a banker family. You're not aristocrats. You're kind of nouveau riche. How do you go about establishing the fact that you're kind of the big kids on campus, right? Well, you commission all of this art to, kind of elevate the status of your family as people of taste and wealth and influence, right? The, what you're talking about is if you go to the American Art Museum or the National Gallery or something like that, and you look at paintings by people such as Albert Bierstadt um, or some of the, the Hudson River School painters, what are they doing? They are trying to capture on canvas not only the beauty of the kind of wild parts of America that were becoming accessible as a result of the railroad and, and, and so forth, but whether directly or not, they were manifestations of the idea that America had this purpose, that America had this go out and tame the wilderness young man sort of idea that you were going to go forth and, and you know manifest destiny that we have to head out towards the Pacific and kind of conquer all of this new land and you know bring democracy to the world and so forth. And then even more recently, um, you could easily see in the films how the empire could use art in the same way that totalitarian regimes from you know Hitler to Mao to Castro have always commissioned this kind of realist art, right? Of like, look at all of these happy workers, right? How wonderful it is to live in this, you know, regime where you can be shot for saying something that somebody doesn't like, right? Um, you know, Shepard Fairey's Obama poster being the most recent example of that. And there's none of that. There are no recruitment posters for stormtroopers. Like, wouldn't that, couldn't you see that? You know, like, like just kind of hanging around on like Moss Eisley's spaceport. It's like, you know, join the empire and save the world. You know, there's none of that. And it's such a lost opportunity. That's actually a, that's a really good point. 
that because it is an empire, right? It, it, you would think that propaganda would be necessity for them, right? To keep everybody in line and, and get everybody excited and, and recruit those millions of stormtroopers who are all going to get blown up on the Death Star. And what sure. better way to do that with art? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you think also, like, there are also <clears throat> sort of, there are areas where there is a, a kind of non-pejorative way to use art in terms of connecting yourself to the past, right? So you could go to, let's say, um, you know, Buckingham Palace or something, and you can see portraits of, you know, previous kings and queens of, uh, of Britain, right? Just like you can go to the National Portrait Gallery here in D.C. and you can see portraits of the previous presidents of the United States and first ladies. Why isn't there anything like that of previous, you know, masters of the Jedi order when they're in the Jedi temple? Why isn't there a series of, you know, paintings in a long hallway um, in Naboo Palace of previous queens of Naboo? Right. There is there is an aversion in Star Wars, not not a not a oops, we forgot. But there to me, but it seems like there, there is almost an aversion to creating these two dimensional images. Now, I, I did find out that in the sort of director's cut or or what have you of episode two, that when they go to Padme's lakeside retreat, um, for one of the worst, most horribly written romantic scenes ever on film, um, that <laughs> there are holographic images of her family there, um, but that they're not in the final film. And, okay, well, but that's not what most people would know, right? Again, I'm, I'm speaking to, to kind of a general audience, not to a specialist audience. And, and, I, and, and I think, well... Why was that choice made? Was the choice made because the, the, the dialogue was, was particularly bad dreck at that point, and that's why they chose to, to cut it out, because Lucas can't, you know, Lucas has a hard time with romantic dialogue. But maybe it just didn't serve the purpose. I don't know. So, you know, the, but the, the way I kind of resolved that was to say, you know, ultimately, though, which a lot of people who don't necessarily know about how the films were made and particularly don't think about the fact that Lucas invented a lot of the technology to make these films, um, don't realize how very much, particularly in the first trilogy of episodes four, five, and six, a lot of these people that we see on screen are being projected against a painting, right? Because there is no cloud city. Right. You can only do so much with plastic plants on Dagobah. At the end of the day, you have to add things by, you know, green screen techniques and so on. There are miniatures and models that have to be used, but all of those things have to be backed up with paintings. And so I kind of wrap up the piece by saying, in a way, the entire Star Wars universe has painting in it, but it's just not presented to you in that way. The work of Ralph McQuarrie, who for example, came up with the design for Darth Vader, came up with the design for C-3PO, um, said this is what Tatooine looks like. This, you know, all of these different aspects of, of what we recognize as being the Star Wars universe are not actually out of Lucas's head. They're out of this artist's head, right? And those paintings, even though, you know, McQuarrie himself has, you know, passed away quite a while ago um, and, you know, hadn't worked on the films, more recent films, uh, his work 
is still referenced and still kind of sets the four corners that artists working in the Star Wars universe use as their kind of template for, okay, well, what does this look like? And, 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 you know, has someone thought this out before? Um, and it helps them because it kind of limits things. And I often find that when you're dealing with a creative person, if you just give them a blank check, they almost don't know what to do with it because their mind runs all over the place. But with respect to successful works of art and particularly paintings, if you say, I need a portrait of my wife and I need it to be about this big and she wants to wear this dress, right? That telescopes down the universe that you're working in and you have to be creative within those parameters or those confines. So the legacy of the original Star Wars films is that all of these paintings and drawings that were created by that original team are still, you know, 50 years on, still informing the way that that universe looks now, you know? And that ultimately is, is what the legacy of painting is for the film. It's all over the films, but it's not presented to you in a very direct way. I think that's a really good point because uh, you're absolutely right. It, even this far gone from the original Star Wars, you know, uh, 40 plus years later, um, they are still using Ralph McQuarrie paintings um, uh, and sketches and stuff to make stuff for the new movies. They're like, oh, hey, hey, did Ralph do that? Oh, okay, well, let's, let's use exactly. that as our base. And so it's funny yeah. that you're right. We don't see paintings, but paintings from the 1970s um, that were all done during the development stage of that first movie or maybe the, or maybe Empire Strikes Back or whatever, they still influence stuff we see now fresh on the screen. Yeah, and, and the influence of that is huge because when Lucas was coming up with this idea, you know, and everyone's like, this is, you know, crazy town banana pants, he, he would go to these studio head meetings with Ralph's paintings and say, this is what it's going to look like, you know, if you give me the money. Right. And so then they could visualize, you know, this is before, you know, PowerPoint and before AI and rendering and all this, all this stuff is done by hand. And here you have these paintings from a guy who came out of the advertising industry, right. Who had to do, okay, now we're doing an advertisement for this. Now we're doing an advertisement for that. Um, you know, covers for magazines and catalogs and so on. So they had to learn how to paint in a way that would sell whatever the product was to the executive who was going to have to sign off on it, right? Couldn't be too murky, couldn't be too difficult to understand. It, it had to be something that they could understand so that they could then come up with the advertising campaign that they needed to do in order to be able to, you know, sell the product. This was always... Um, you know, Darren's problem on Bewitched with Larry Tate, right? Because he would come up with these esoteric concepts and then Larry would be like, oh, nobody's going to buy that, you know, because it had to be something that the common person was going to be able to understand. It's exactly what they're doing, right? That's, it's, they're at the end of the studio system, but the studios still have all the money, particularly for this young filmmaker who people are going to have to take a chance on. The, the artist, the painter is the one who gets him the gig. It's not his ideas because at the time there wasn't anything like that. You know, he's like, I essentially want to bring back the idea of Buck Rogers and all this kind of stuff. It's like, 
you know, who's done that? Like, nobody does that anymore. I think probably before Star Wars, the last thing that had been like that was Logan's Run, which was not exactly a, you know, smashing success. So, and then that brings in the whole, you know, Star Trek comes back and all this other stuff comes back. So, you know, Battlestar Galactica, it's, it's really, it's down to this painter that convinced a bunch of guys with money that it would be a good idea to invest in this product. And, and, you know, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I would really love to see a big retrospective exhibition of his paintings because they have had an enormous influence, not just on, you know, things like science fiction films or whatever, but just on, on, on American and indeed global culture. There's so much stuff that we think about with things like outer space and other cultures and the way that people relate to one another that come out of this one artist that people don't realize. Well, that begs the question. Do you think they'll have a, uh, a, uh, exhibit like that at Lucas's own museum? I mean, I would hope so. One of the, the, when I had started working on this piece, um, I actually reached out to the Lucas museum people um, because I wanted to, you know, see if they were willing to, to, I, I, I didn't imagine that I would get to talk to Lucas himself, obviously, but, um, you know, some of the curators and, and so forth there, and they didn't want to talk to me. Uh, that's never happened to me before, <laughs> um, in what a decade of doing this professionally now, uh, I can, you know, call up the, uh, and in fact, I did. I, 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 I was writing a piece that I wasn't sure about uh, earlier this year, and I called up uh, someone in the press office at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I said, hey, uh, you know about this guy? Like, I'm thinking about writing art. Like, what do you think? And they put me in touch with someone, and we kind of had a conversation, whatever. Um, and that's the Museum of Modern Art, a, a very, you know, whatever you think of it, a, a very well-established, very you know, prestigious, you know, one of the most famous museums in the world. And I can talk to their press people. Um, the Lucas press people, I, I don't know what's going on there, but, uh, <laughs> so they need to, you know, do something. So when I, and I eventually, when I talked to my editor about it, he's like, well, but cut that part out. We just won't talk about it. I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm not getting invited to the opening, you know? Uh, so I don't <laughs> know what they're planning to do. I did end up, um, trying to contact, uh, Camille Paglia because always good for, a quote, uh, and who was unfortunately out, uh, researching, traveling somewhere. I was, I was able to talk to her assistant, but, but, you know, it was interesting in that within an hour of contacting her assistant, I not only had a response, I had links to recent pieces that she had written about star Wars, right? Cause she's obsessed with George Lucas. And that was really helpful for me in terms of framing what my argument was, but I had to go down so many rabbit holes with the Lucas organization to try to find one person <laughs> to even talk to me for, you know, a minute about paintings in their collection and they just didn't want to. So, uh, you know, what I, I don't know if they're ever going to do an exhibition or not. They should, I would imagine that Lucas or, you know, Disney or somebody probably owns a lot of the, the original work, but it's, you know, it should be seen at a big show and whether it's there or at the American art museum or at the Met or something like that. Um, that is a big part of our culture. And, and I remember when a few years ago there was a show about Walt Disney at the Met, uh, that was a marvelous show and people were like, Walt Disney, but a lot of Walt Disney's fairy tale films from the you know period when he was running the studio um, are drawn on 
architecture and decorative art from the French Baroque and Rococo periods because when he was uh, uh, fighting in Europe during World War One, he did a lot of drawings and a lot of sketches. He was posted to a lot of kind of half-ruined chateau and things like that. And that later all came back to influence the way that he looked at things like, you know, Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or what have you. Um, and the juxtaposition of those things alongside his paintings, drawings, etc., cetera, um, was really interesting. And again, a huge part of American and world culture, culture. You can certainly say the same thing for Ralph McQuarrie. He's just not as well known because in a sense, he's a journeyman artist, right? He's not running his own studio. He's working for Lucas. Um, but he really needs to, to get the recognition, even if it's posthumously, that he deserves. Yeah, because it's not just the Star Wars universe and the cultural effect, but there's also a technological effect that came out of him helping Lucas to sell these ideas. You know, you think about various surround sounds, systems that are available, all the uh, advancements that Lucas was able to make once he had more money. There's just so much technology that affects way more than the Star Wars universe that goes back to those original paintings. So Absolutely. Yeah. You don't have industrial light and magic, you know, which is the kind of granddaddy of all of these special effects studios uh, without, you know, Ralph saying, here's what this should sound like. Here's what this should look like, etc." Well, I love it. Um, I think this was just a great idea. And um, this was uh, when you when you wrote this a few weeks ago, <laughs> uh, Ben put it in the transom. Um, so, uh, you know, the whole world got to, uh, uh, see it, uh, for a second time over. And, uh, you and I were emailing about this and I said, we just, we just got to talk about this. Cause I think this is just such a great, uh, such a great topic. Well, um, thank you. I will say that I found out, uh, subsequently that although I don't consider it a painting, uh, and it doesn't change my original thesis, there is in fact a decorated ceiling in episode nine. And I missed it. Uh, but no one told me. I found it on my own. Uh, so you in uh, the Skywalker Ranch uh, on Tatooine, I guess that's what you call it, or the farmstead or whatever, the, the, the dining room, and this is appropriate to, uh, to what Rich's cocktail is, in fact, um, the dining room has an ethnographic design frescoed on it, uh, these kind of black and white geometric shapes. Now, is that a painting or is that a design, right? I mean, you could say that it's an abstract work of art, something that, you know, Picasso or Miro or someone like that would do, but it's never really made clear what it is. Um, so I said, it still doesn't really change what the ultimate story is, which is that if you look at other sci-fi fantasy franchises, right? Lord of the Rings, for example. Um, there are scenes in which a painting or a fresco is an important part of moving the story forward, right? If you remember back to Fellowship of the Ring, when they get to Rivendell, there's a night scene in which uh, Boromir comes into this kind of shrine that they have to a Sildor, right? Where they have the shards yeah. of Narsil and there's a big painting of a Sildor fighting Sauron on the back wall, yeah. right? And Aragorn's in there and they have this kind of exchange. And then after he leaves, Aragorn puts the part, the, the fragments of, of Narsil back in its little shrine. And then Arwen comes in 
and he's reflecting on the painting and saying, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for this, you know, and, and she says something to the effect of, you know, I don't think they're going to have the same fate. And they begin this conversation and then they go out and they have their kind of romantic talk that kind of establishes the relationship between the two of them. Right. And if you look at Star Trek, for example, Data and Picard in a number of episodes paint. Yes. Right. And they talk about painting. And so admittedly, that's a little bit different because that is, in a sense, our galaxy just a few centuries ahead of us. But you have these other places, you know, Harry Potter, you have all these other these kind of sci fi fantasy worlds in which there is painting and its absence in Star Wars was just to me was just so striking that I thought, well, given that this was going to come out in May and everyone on the internet is going to be May the 4th be with you and then on the 5th it's the Revenge of the 5th and so on, I thought, you know, it, this is a kind of a nice way to uh, both acknowledge that, acknowledge the Mandalorian season wrapping up and the new announcements of what's going to be coming. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was it was really good timing. And I, I'm very pleased with the, the response that I've gotten from a lot of people about it. Well, I'm sure in one of those paintings was probably someone drinking blue milk and rich was kind enough to come up with a way for us to enjoy blue milk without having to go to a galaxy far, far away and get a nice buzz off it at the same time. Um, <laughs> because if you're going to drink blue milk, you might as well enjoy it. <laughs> uh, right. Rich walk through the uh, blue milk cocktail for us. So actually I, uh, I was going to get inventive, but someone out there had already uh, done it for me. Uh, it was uh, Karen Grill of Sassafras Saloon in Los Angeles made blue milk of Tatooine. And it is basically a tiki drink. Uh, it's light, refreshing, uh, good for this time of year. It is non-dairy, so don't think of it as thick alcoholic milk. It is not that. Uh, and it consists of two ounces of gin, half ounce of blue curacao, one ounce of cream of coconut, three-quarter ounce of lime juice, freshly squeezed, three-quarter ounce of pineapple juice, half ounce of orgiat, which is an almond syrup that's used in a lot yep. of drinks, and then a half ounce of vanilla syrup. Uh, for the vanilla, mm. you can make it yourself. I made this drink last night after about a 12-hour day being a soccer dad, so I bought the, <laughs> the Tarani uh, vanilla syrup that they sell to put in your coffee and things like that. Yep. But you take all those ingredients, you throw them into a shaker, shake them up real well, and then strain it into a Collins glass. And it looks like blue milk, but it is uh, not, like I said, it's not very thick. And it is a, it's a pretty refreshing cocktail. It would be worth, if you're having a Star Wars party or something like that, it would be worth baking up a bunch of batches or a batch of it so everyone could have one. Not sure it's going to go into my regular rotation because it is pretty ingredient and labor intensive. But... I recommend trying one uh, the next time you sit down to watch one of the Star Wars entries or while reading Billy's excellent article, which you must do if you haven't already. Yeah, and, and you know what, Billy, we should <laughs> we could do a whole other show on this, but um, I want to do a show with you on uh, AI art because that's a whole other topic uh, that I think is really interesting, this whole development of AI doing art with places like uh what is it called like mid journey and and indeed uh because that, that's a whole other issue and who owns the copyrights on that and all that sort of stuff that's a mess it is uh and in fact uh i know this is this is sort of 
you know, listeners, this is behind the scenes for you. Uh, the, the men on this call have actually had a long conversation about this, which I saved uh, <laughs> in email and uh, am, am actually working on that. I will say a uh, preview of coming attractions. Uh, my next piece that's coming out in the, in the June issue is an interview with the brand new uh, head of IT at the National Gallery uh, because the National Gallery was just named the number one art museum in America for the first time since I believe 2008 because it's normally the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, but they finally beat the Met. And one of the reasons is, is that they've been changing their visitor experience and trying to make it more interactive. And they are actually looking into AI with, in some really interesting ways that, that I was surprised uh, that something that's considered kind of stodgy, uh, you know, this art museum where you go see all of these, you know, people who've been dead for 500 years, they're, they're really <laughs> thinking about the future and thinking about, okay, how are we going to draw people in? How do we get more people interested in this stuff? Right. Um, and they are coming up with some ways to use AI. So when that article drops, I guess it'll be sometime this week or next. Uh, yeah. Take a look at that and, and you know, see, see the future of, uh, of museum world. Cause it'll be quite exciting. That sounds great. That sounds great. Yet another one. Um, all right. Well, Billy, thanks so much for being here, Rich. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Gal. Thank you.